Welcome back to The Whole Damn Pie. I am really excited this week to introduce you to one of my professional inspirations and counterpart, Priya Saxena, who owns Equitable Future. I have hired Priya to provide a DEI training to our staff at the Vita Agency to inform how we work. I've also had the opportunity to work with Priya on some of our cornerstone projects. The conversation today really surrounds the idea of diversity as a value and not a momentary thing in this age of wokeness. We talk about their inspiration for Equitable Future, how they approach the work in DEI space, how we've worked together, um, and some challenges that we faced and how we support each other through this. I really hope that you enjoy today's episode with Priya Saxena on The Whole Damn Pie. Hi, Priya. Hi, Amalia. Thank Welcome you back for part two of my fun. conversation I, with Priya Saxena like so of Equitable Future and our discussion about diversity oh, and gosh. our work we'll in see. this area. Our conversation will center around diversity because it's Welcome a, back to part, part of two the work that you of my conversation with Priya Saxena of Equitable Future. Today, we continue our conversation about why this work is hard, necessary, and how we can use all the support we can get. But let's start at the beginning. Sure. Tell us about your life growing up. On your site, you mentioned blending Indian immigrant culture with suburban New York traditions. What was that like for you? Well, as a kid, it's the only thing. So Mm -hmm. for me, it was wonderful and weird and confusing. But I think what I value so much about my childhood is what it's turned me into. I learned growing up in an immigrant family in a mainly white neighborhood of the five towns of Long Island, kids often really have to straddle multiple worlds in their lives. So at home, I was Indian, but at school, I was doing anything to fit in. Yeah. So if all the girls were saying they loved roasted chicken, I wasn't saying that I loved rice and dal and (laughs) Indian food. I was like, oh yeah, right. even though I've never had this dish before, I'm telling people that I love it because you want to fit in so much. So I think from that, (laughs) I really learned empathy and just realizing that you really don't know how a person sees the world and what they have to go through to just (laughs) exist. Um, And I really started to appreciate the nuances of different communities and cultures and see what makes different people tick and different communities tick. Why did my Indian family value music over sports? Why did they value self-preservation over like collaboration and all sorts of things? So yeah, just realizing and being able to weave between communities was fascinating And also there were some downsides to it, but overall, I think it really gave me the strength I have today. I want to know if there's like a story or a significant memory or something that really captures what it was like for you growing up in that predominantly white suburb as an Indian child. Yeah. So I mentioned I grew up in New York and I grew up Mm -hmm. on Long Island and what really resonates for me, I'll age myself, but I was in in middle school during the 9-11 attacks. We could see what was happening on TV. We mm-hmm. could see from the park, the remnants of smoke in the sky. Wow. And I think it was 
honestly that day when I realized how different I was. Wow. Because it was already that narrative of brown people in general being dangerous because we didn't know what happened at the World Trade Center started very quickly. And being one of three brown families in my neighborhood, seeing very quickly what it's like to be in the inner circle and then to be kicked out very quickly was really stark for me as a kid and really got me obsessed with who makes these rules and why they suck. Yeah. First of all, middle school, that's such like a formidable time and oh my gosh, yeah. Time <laughs> regardless. So you felt it pretty immediately. Like you were mm-hmm. othered really quickly as a result of 9/11. Whether implicitly or in a passive way, whether it was passive yeah. or active, there was definitely a change in how I was treated, how my family felt, how my peers felt. Wow. And whether it was a stereotyping or just like a, ooh, this is an awkward topic now. And I don't know how to address this because I don't know how to deal with differences and diversity and what is the unknown was something I learned pretty early. And I realized too, it later on in life that I saw that shift happen for me. Yeah. But a lot of people, mainly Black, Latinx, Indigenous folks are born with that difference already imprinted on them because of their race. And so that's something that I've also had to sit with is that so much of the racial imbalance I felt in my life came from an event and not necessarily just my race. Yeah. Yeah. So were there other events that you can think of throughout your life or growing up or maybe something that just challenged you to balance that, like holding on to culture and fitting into this society? Mm hmm. I think I always realized I was different Mm -hmm. or came from a different type of community. My family is massive. My mom is like one of 10 or nine or something. Oh, wow. Um, We have a huge family and we all immigrated to the same town in New York. We all grew up in the same neighborhoods, in neighboring school districts. And so just to always be with family Uh (laughs) was something that I didn't really see my other friends experiencing my Indian culture with just having massive families and everyone is your brother and sister. It's not, this is my first cousin or my second cousin once removed. It's just your brother, your sister. Yeah. They're Indian. Call them auntie. If they're older than you call them uncle, (laughs) like everyone is family. Well, it's so interesting because that's huge that you could have chosen. I am just going to stay in the safe space. But instead, you have done so much. And when I look at (laughs) things that you have spent time doing in your life, I feel like I need to step it up a bit because (laughs) of your endless curiosity. I'd like to spend some time talking about that. Yeah, You're a classically trained musician. (laughs) And first of all, tell me if I get any of these wrong, because I might just be lying. But (laughs) you're a classically trained musician. You have a bachelor's degree in urban studies and a master's in public administration, plus a wide variety of professional experience. Okay. What fed this endless curiosity and pushed this introvert to explore all of these things? That's pretty impressive. (laughs) So I'll start with the music. Music was my escape. It still is. It is 
how I felt safe expressing myself as a kid. Okay. Um, because I was so introverted and shy, I didn't really express myself like a lot of other kids. And so that came off as, as weird. Instead, I turned to music and turned to realizing very quickly that you have to find ways to build your own community hmm. to, to make yourself safe and comfortable and happy. It's really important to me as a kid. So I got that through music and I'm still very connected to how I relate to music now. Insulate yourself. Mm -hmm. Okay. That makes sense. I found it was so much easier to not only play music, but also get to know people through their music and what they really like. So sharing music too is really important to me. Sharing playlists and stuff is still, I love doing that. <laughs> well, that is one thing that I miss from being in the office because when we, you were in the office yeah. and sometimes you would come visit us and <laughs> sit and work with us, everybody had like their DJ day. So we would I loved it. learn so much about people through the music that they chose to play yeah, and everybody knew it was mine when it was TLC, no scrubs. Cause that was my playlist every time. I was literally just thinking about that album. My cousins and I used to play TLC as kids. We were like, okay, you'll be T-Boz, you'll be left eye, you'll be chilly. Yes. And we'll pretend we're in the waterfalls music video. <laughs> like, that's how I spent my time as a kid. I don't know about anybody else. <laughs> they were so badass. They were it was three so women of color. They were all yeah. different. They were like bosses. They, they like so wore good. condoms on their <laughs> outfits. On as your like, eye, yeah. Yes, <laughs> as a way to women's liberation. And mm -hmm. yeah, they were pretty badass. Yeah. See, you can connect to anybody through music and sharing a song. And so that for me was a really easy way to connect with people. And which instruments do you play? Is it more than one that you're trained oh, on? Goodness. And are you a singer too? So this is all my first life as like a child. We're <laughs> really digging into. So I, I played viola, I played piano, and I sang also. But yeah, music was my life as a kid. I was going to, my mom was shuttling me to music classes Wow. Every week, like chorus, band, one-on-one -on -one lessons, competitions. Like I freaking loved it. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you're talking about this is when you were a kid. So when did you stop competing? I was always a really pragmatic, nerdy child. And so <laughs> early in my high school time, I think I was in ninth grade, I had gone to this four-week orchestral summer camp with the best performers in the state and I had gotten off the wait list I was clearly the worst one there it was awful I had oh. and I just realized I was like okay to do this professionally requires like a different caliber and I don't know if I want to do that and so I decided to let it go and it was really hard I miss it a lot but I just I couldn't do the competitive nature of it it was it took away the expression and the freedom that I really loved yeah. and didn't want to compromise going forward. I love consuming music and I right. love being in this environment of music, but I don't want to compete and practice all day. It became not fun to practice all day. Um, wow. You were very self-aware at 13 to make that decision. <laughs> Okay, now let's go past 13. Let's talk about your urban studies and then Ooh. your public administration. What sparked these things for you? Yeah, so I had decided I wanted to go to a woman's college when I was in high school, mainly because I wanted to figure myself out mm -hmm. and 
knew that would be easier for some reason without the male gaze. I couldn't tell you why 17-year-old Priya thought this was cool, but I was obsessed with Hillary Clinton at that time. She was my role model and she had gone to Wellesley. Oh, that's um, right. I was like, all right, if I want to be smart and whatever, <laughs> such right. a nerd. I was you like, I have to go to a woman's college. Suit, you better go to Wellesley. Yes. Oh my God. And now it turns out all I wear are joggers and sweatshirts. So here we are. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I have accumulated a fair amount of lounge gear oh, yeah. in this quarantine. Like oh, yeah. every little like soft pajamas that could be pajamas <laughs> or you could right. potentially wear them out of the house. Yeah. I have amassed a fair amount. Same. And I'm not going back after the pandemic. No. I'm not, you will not find me near a denim. You will not find me near <laughs> a trouser. <laughs> no, I will never put on a blazer. <laughs> I know. I think these are like the leisure suits of yes. 2021. Yes. Okay. What school did you end up going to? So I went to Bryn Mawr College, which is in Pennsylvania and went there because it was honestly just the most welcoming campus. My family and I had visited Easter break in my senior year of high school. Mm -hmm. And we didn't realize that the campus would be closed because it was Easter. Um, so no one was on campus. And I was pretty <laughs> bummed that like we couldn't get a campus tour or anything. But then there were just these two girls walking around who had stayed during break and asked what I was doing <laughs> on oh. their campus and told them I was like, oh, I just got in, but I don't know anything. And they showed me around and they like brought me to their dorms and to their classrooms and just really made me feel like I was part of something. And that was it for me. Being able to find space and community so easily was just the ticket. So I went to Bryn Mawr. I, <laughs> to be completely honest, majored in urban studies because I, it allowed, it was the only major that allowed you to take classes in other departments and have them count oh. towards your major. So I was like, okay, cool. I'll take some poli-sci classes and some anthro and some sociology. I'll throw in like a geology class for my science credit, but I could just like dip into every major that I was curious about uh -huh. and amass these credits for an urban studies degree. <laughs> Again, that endless curiosity, Priya. <laughs> and yeah, so that's what I did. I took classes in pretty much every department I could find and loved it and really was stemming from my experiences as an early teen was just really obsessed with kind of who writes the rules why are things the way they are? Like, how could one event change my life so much type of thing? And that's when I got into policy and culture and mm -hmm. how our behavior and values influences our space and how we experience the world. So because of that, I took architecture classes because the way you build a building can influence how you think, which is why schools and prisons are built in brutalist structure because they impose order. Then got really obsessed with urban planning because the way you organize streets and determine where public transit goes determines how you're going to get to your job that day <laughs> and whether you have. Yeah. Or the opportunities available to that community or yeah, ex exactly. And through 
just being curious, again, obsessed with the rules and mainly trying to break them because I didn't like what I was seeing Mm -hmm. in society. So I was like, let me find those rules so I could just slowly break them apart. Drove me to policy. I worked early in college at the Center for Social Inclusion, which is now Race Forward. Maya Wiley was my first boss and I love her so much. She is the reason why I'm so tenacious with research and with figuring out why things aren't fair and what went wrong and how to make things better. I really learned from her how to keep asking questions, how to not take no for an answer, how to advocate for community and advocate for fairness. That's always really mattered to me. Just fairness. Are things fair? Yeah, I share that with you so much that it's sometimes it's so easy to look at a situation or a policy or a unintended consequence of a policy and Mm -hmm. or just where you're like where did the common sense go in this Mm -hmm. this is either really rooted in something not awesome and absolutely (laughs) terrible or they didn't think this through and Mm -hmm. clearly it's not fair and if that's the outcome then we need to go back and change it Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so that's really what sparked my curiosity and what drives it is just this I don't know, I guess, obsession with making things fair, with making and creating a society where people can actually thrive and yeah, just live healthier, better lives. So that's why yeah. I do what I do. <laughs> I don't know, just some light stuff. So you founded Equitable Future not too long ago. No, yeah, just last year. But doing some really cool stuff. So where did, I think this all leads to maybe the inspiration for the work that you're doing now, but if you can just share what has been your inspiration for creating Equitable Future? Yeah, I I think that's a really great question because I founded Equitable Future in the middle of the pandemic and really didn't have time to reflect on what got me there. And I, I think primarily it was a frustration of working in predominantly white institutions Mm -hmm. where there was such a focus on learning what the concepts of diversity, equity, and inclusion are, but not focusing on implementing them or changing things to make things better. And I couldn't take it anymore. Like I couldn't sit through one more brown bag. I couldn't sit through one more training. I couldn't like, I just couldn't do one more strategic plan about how we were going to infuse racial equity to have it sit on the shelf. And I just was like, I was tired. And, and, and not to say that we weren't doing good work. There was definitely good work in progress being made, but I really just felt like what we need is transformation and what we're doing in these organizations that have been led by and built by white dominant culture aren't the solution right. or aren't the biggest part of the solution. So I really needed to one create a healthy and safe work environment for myself. And that first was working by myself and, and building equitable future and creating that space for me. Yeah. But also it, it's born out of, having people commit to diversity, equity, and inclusion, but taking it that next step and centering the work in anti-racism and justice. It's not just about understanding these concepts 
and then thinking about them on a theory level. It's really about how we change the way we do our work and what values we use to guide our work. And so with Equitable Future, the work is about helping people infuse justice-oriented values in their work so that day-to-day, every action they make does a little bit more for justice, does a little bit more for fairness. So it's not just at the end of your list, how did I, did I ask my diversity question today? No, it's how did you infuse this in everything you did? That's what I help people with. Which is, that is a big thing, right? Because even for, sometimes that's a lot to wrap your head around, but it's sometimes it's a lot scary just to take the course or just to sit in on the seminar or just to think, oh God, maybe that is, you know, maybe, I, maybe, maybe, and then, and then taking the next step can be even scarier. But mm-hmm. I also want to acknowledge that you started this, not just during the pandemic, but you were doing this prior to the murder of George Floyd. But yeah. then we had a summer of where people were using terms like anti-racism or mm-hmm. white dominant culture where you know, those just weren't part of the vernacular before I don't not as much yeah. and I think that creates both opportunity and challenge right because from you want to take advantage of this moment because people are now listening or they want to learn something mm-hmm. but it can also be really taxing to try to respond have mm-hmm. you felt any of that over the last year I really try hard to distance myself or separate myself from the popularity of the moment. Because again, I think a sustainable movement is thinking about this as a marathon and not a sprint as something, as a way to change your day-to-day lifestyle and not just put something on a a box to check it off. (laughs) It's all right. I actually want to go back a little bit because you're from New York, you went to school in Pennsylvania, and then I heard you worked in Washington, D.C., Something brought you to the West Coast, to Seattle. What was it? Yeah. So I worked in D.C. for about five years after college. I worked at the Urban Institute doing research, traveled all over the country doing qualitative research, which really just meant I got to hear people's stories sure, and got to build trust in relationships with people all over the country so that they could share their stories with me and that I could use their stories to make change. But it got to the point where I was at this point in my career where I was taking on more responsibility at work, but not getting the title bump, not getting the salary bump, typical woman of color at work stuff. Right. (laughs) And so. And as a smart woman of color, you did. And as a smart woman of color, I got my butt to grad school. (laughs) Which sounds Um, like it was a good choice for you. Yeah, it really was. It was a way to solidify what I had learned at my first job out of college and to give myself a little time to to spread my wings and figure out what it really was that I wanted to do. I came to the West Coast because one of my favorite projects when I was at Urban was actually in Portland, Oregon. And so I would fly from DC to Portland for a year. I was doing that flight like once a month to spend time with with some teenagers in a mixed income housing development. And we were working together to build 
a teen-centered kind of food access point. Really loved that work and thought that maybe because of that, the West Coast was the best place for me to go to do innovative work like that. And so I came out here for grad school. It also helped that my boyfriend at the time, now fiance, was also applying to school out here and grew up out here. So we moved together, which was pretty wild. That is wild. Yeah. And then, (laughs) yeah. And then I went to grad school and that was a whole other experience. (laughs) And you did that here in Seattle? Yeah. So I went to UW. I'm a, a graduate at the Evans School and graduated three years ago. I I was born and raised here in Seattle and I have my own Seattle experience with race and culture and I am often asked people how did it feel <laughs> you're supposed to affirm that I'm not crazy <laughs> that it is an interesting place and it's an mm-hmm. interesting relationship with race mm-hmm. and I feel like for diversity inclusion work in particular and the kind of work that you do and that we sometimes do and that we can collaborate on at times, that it's a really interesting space because there is this overall belief, especially in the Seattle core, that we are a progressive city and Mm -hmm. there's a lot of people wanting to do the right things, but a lot of resistance to honesty. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's what you would call it. Like yeah. having these honest conversations. Yeah. I, I can't equate it to public relations and media relations work, but I do sometimes because in my past life, that's how I started in communications is I did a lot of freelance publicist work. And mm-hmm. I would prefer to pitch 10 stories a day to anybody on the n- Northeast coast, New York, <laughs> than I would to anybody in the Pacific Northwest because it is, 10 immediate answers, yes or no, versus mm-hmm. 10 like passive, aggressive, maybes, don't want to give an answer. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, it's just, there's this Northwest yeah. vibe that gets really frustrating for me as a person who's pretty direct. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you try to loop in race in there and you try to have these conversations that really matter. I I have found it myself to be really frustrating. I wonder if you experienced any of that when you moved to Seattle? Oh my goodness. Absolutely. It was a huge culture shock for me to move to Seattle to the Pacific Northwest. I will say I live in Tacoma now, which is where my partner actually grew up in the Parkland area. And it's way better. It is like wait, it's way different than Seattle. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It is like we Tacoma is like we are direct, and we also might fight you at the same time. (laughs) But like, yeah, like I know where I stand with people in Tacoma. People are friendly and engaging and resilient and passionate about making their city better, and don't tiptoe around it. And I think that is just, it's been so refreshing, honestly. I love, I love it here. It's such an inspiring, amazing community. But yeah, moving to Seattle was really hard. In my first year, or not even, all throughout my time in Seattle, had multiple conversations where, um, I remember this one time in class, someone told me that they were really intimidated by me. And when I asked why, it 
the the reason they gave was that I looked them in the eye when I talked to them, <laughs> was that I made eye contact. And this is not someone who has any sort of condition that would require them to not want to make eye contact. They didn't experience that. So like, I was just like, I didn't realize that I was being intimidating by making direct eye contact. And then another person wow. told me that I just wasn't nice because I was too direct. And I think it was something I had said in an email, I'd ask a direct question. So there, there have been times where I have been challenged about my direct nature of communication. But when it comes to race and equity work, you have to start with reconciling where we've been and how we got here. You're never going to make progress if you don't realize what's got us here and learn from that. Yeah. Yeah. 